Hello, and welcome to the first ever DO Engage podcast. I'm Sean Neal, and I'm joined by AOA's amazing and talented public policy team. Hey, guys, I'm Lauren Latney. I am the Assistant Director of Congressional Affairs here at the AOA. Uh, I just celebrated my second year here, and prior to that, I worked eight years on Capitol Hill working for David Scott of Georgia. And this is John Michael Villarama. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs here at AOA. I've been with AOA just a little over three years. Prior to that, I was with Senator Lisa Markowski from Alaska, and I oversaw her healthcare portfolio. I'm Rain Richards, joining you from Chicago. I'm the Director of State Government Affairs, and I've been with the AOA for a little over three years. Before that, I was a lawyer for about a year, and before that, I was in law school. And I'm Sean Neal, Director of Grassroots, and we wanted to engage in this public uh, policy podcast to give you an understanding of what we do every day on your behalf and to give you a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look of the AOA public policy team. Uh, but first, we're going to go ahead and discuss what makes up public policy and what's it comprised of. Uh, it's comprised of multiple things, including lobbyists, state government affairs, regulatory, advocacy, OPAC, what in the world does all that mean? Uh, we'll go ahead and start off with lobbying. So um, one of the things that we do as lobbyists is like an information giver. So I work on the House side where I lobby the House Energy and Commerce Committee and House Ways Committee on issues regarding uh, physician reimbursement, workforce, all these different kind of issues to educate members of Congress and their staff on what exactly the AOA does, how we can be an assistance to them, and sometimes propose legislation, amendments, questions for them to ask panels, all the kit and caboodle there. And I do the what Lauren does on the House side on the Senate. So I primarily cover the health committee. That is the health, education, labor and pensions committee and finance committee. So those are the two main jurisdiction where health care reform or anything related to health care uh, will be um, covered. And on the state side, AOA doesn't have direct lobbyists at the state level, but we partner with our osteopathic affiliates in all uh, in all of our states, and some of them have their own lobbyists. So at the state level, we, we provide resources, we track and analyze thousands of bills every year on issues that are important to the osteopathic medical profession, um, such as osteopathic equivalency and recognition for DOs or board certifications, um, osteopathic medical students. We also track issues of scope of practice where non-physician clinicians are seeking to expand their scope. Um, we want to make sure that physicians are adequately involved in patient care decisions. Um, we also do physician workforce issues like uh, loan repayment assistance to help attract physicians to provide care in rural and underserved areas, all those sorts of things. And we'll reach out to our state affiliates to see if they'd like to partner on these issues whenever they pop up. Oh, well, if like well, on the legislative side, we work on sort of broad range issues. And once that legislation is passed, um, we go into something called the rules making process. And that's where the regulatory team comes in for AOA. Uh, what they do is they comb through whenever there is a, a piece of legislation that's passed. The administration then will go through it and create sort of like guidelines of how they think the legislation should be brokered. And then the AOA, after this legislation, this proposed rule is uh, released, the AOA combs through it and makes comments toward it, um, talking about things that could affect our positions. What does that mean for osteopathic 
philosophy and also reaching out to our agencies such as the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the uh, Health and Human Services, Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the National Institute of Health to talk about how this would directly impact physicians and patients. And then we write these comments and send it in and hopefully they will take our comments and incorporate it into how the legislation should be enacted. Right. And on the advocacy front, my job is to take that information and disperse it to you all uh, to make sure that you have the information in an in easy to read format uh, and let you contact your members of Congress to let them know that these issues are impacting your not only you, but your patients as well. Uh, we, there's also a pack that's tied to the profession. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, let's go ahead and kick off uh, on the issues and what Congress is talking about now. So I think you guys have seen over the last year or so in the DO Engage conversation regarding opioids. We put something about opioids in almost every issue of the DO Engage. Why? Because that's what's that is what members of Congress are discussing. So according to the National Institute of Health, every day there are about 115 people who die from opioid uh, abuse disorder, um, also related to fentanyl and other uh prescription drugs. And so Congress has been trying over the last year or so to create a legislative package to combat this issue. Last year in the fall, um, the House Energy and Commerce Committee held a open session where members of Congress could testify the impact of the opioid crisis on the community. They had over 55 members of Congress testify. They then took those testimonies and started creating legislation in order to address these issues. So last week, the House Energy and Commerce Committee held something called a markup, which is basically it reviews pieces of legislation they can add amendments to it, take things away from it in order to structure it, in order for them to create a legislative package that the entire House of Representatives can vote on. Uh, there were 63 bills that were marked up last week and 57 of them passed and um, will be um will be discussed by the full committee on a later date. And so the purpose of that is in order for members to feel like their legislation got seen, but also to really sort of look at issues that are really important. One of those issues is something that the AOA has been advocating for, which is HR 5102, also known as S2524, which is the Substance Use Disorder Workforce Loan Repayment Act. And I think John Michael has a little bit more detail about it. So the Substance Use Disorder Workforce Loan Repayment Act was something that we started working on, um, AOA, along with Congre Congressman Hal Rogers from Kentucky and Catherine Clark from Massachusetts. We started drafting this bill back in October of last year. Um, one of our primary reasons for creating this legislation was that we saw, especially in Massachusetts, where there was still underserved communities even in the urban areas. And so we wanted to be, um, make it more palatable or more uh, to basically recruit physicians um, working in the substance use disorder area to go in those underserved communities. So this was a loan repayment program um, for, for not just rural underserved areas, but also for urban communities that are underserved. Um, the Senate last week had a markup as well on their opioid package. And we are, <clears throat> excuse me, that passed out of committee um, in voice vote. So it was, it had unanimous consent for passing the legislation. And we are hoping to get that legislation moved before August recess. Um, it's now, we are waiting to see if finance committee has anything to add. Like I mentioned earlier, most healthcare legislation move out of health committee or finance. And this is gonna be a dual effort out of finance and health. And Lauren also mentioned 
um, fentanyl earlier on amounts of deaths that are happening per day because of this issue. And so we are also on the Senate side, including the Judiciary Committee, and to see if they have any input that they can include when it comes to fentanyl in this area. You know, we've been talking a lot between committee staff and, and House staff and Senate staff. John, Michael, or Lauren, can you talk about the difference between the two and why that matters? Absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, I was a personal staff uh, for in the Senate for Senator Markowski. So that meant that I was her personal advisor on healthcare issues in the personal office, primarily dealing with Alaska issue as well as national issue. Um, so if a lobbyist came in from Alaska or someone representing Alaska interests came in and wanted to see legislation moved or something changed, that would have like the 10,000 foot look into it. A committee staff, on the other end, when I would go to them about an idea that we have from, for the state, they can guide us into how to look and insert that into current public law and how to make that happen. Um, and they are more focused. So my, for myself, as a personal staffer, I also handled housing and banking issues, not just healthcare. So those are three pretty big portfolios. But for committee staff, especially in health or finance, you are covering two or three issues all relating to healthcare. So either you're covering Medicare and EHR, or you're co covering tort and Medicaid, um, but you're very focused on issues, and so you're more substantive in those issues and go in a lot more depth. So I think that that's an overarching big difference between the two. You know, since you did have such a broad portfolio, it really speaks to the importance of associations and individuals to reach out to their members of Congress and staffers to educate them about these topics. Uh, Lauren, uh, I know you were a staffer for a long time and you had uh, areas where in times where constituents would reach out to you and to discuss these topics. Uh, have you ever, uh, do you ever recall a situation where associations would reach out to you to, to really educate or push legislation in their favor? Well, it's funny. Uh, one of the topics that we're talking about is the Get Merited Health uh, Professionals Act. And uh, my former boss, Congressman David Scott, he was a Democratic co-sponsor of the bill. And one of the reasons why he signed on to lead the bill on the Dem side is because there were a group of physicians who came in and talked about this issue. And he took it upon himself to make it an issue that he was really passionate about. And so, again, the importance of information sharing, groups like the AOA and other physician groups have details and know their constituency base and can go in and chat with members of Congress and their staff about issues that they may not have known about. And it also gives them a more of a personal story that they can share with other members of Congress. The more and more personal you can make an issue, the more and more likely a member of Congress is likely to take it on. And so having something like opioids is something that has directly impacted every member of Congress and every every district throughout this country. And so you're seeing you're seeing members of Congress really want to work with organizations to make sure that the legislation that is being passed will directly affect their constituents, help their constituents, and also make sure that it won't harm the group that they're trying to work with. So they're making sure that physician groups are not going to be harmed by any legislation that's going to be passed. Well, that's an excellent transition to our next point, and that is the Good Samaritan Health Professionals Act. John Michael, can you kind of highlight why we support this bill? So this legislation was something we've been supportive of for many Congresses now and actually was our lobby issue during DO Day. And so we asked members to co-sponsor the legislation, which would create a federal base on Good Samaritan who volunteer and during a federal disaster 
um, areas. Uh, in federal disaster relief declared areas, um, if there's a tornado, a hurricane, that where they need physicians and the governor asks for assistance and it's declared a federal disaster, then physicians can go in there and volunteer and don't have to worry about medical liability. They will be protected. Um, and for those who participated on DO Day to lobby on this issue, um, a big thanks to all those who participated because we actually garnered a, over 20 plus members to co-sponsor the bill. And so that is a great addition and support and it just shows um, a public support for the legislation as we move forward. And we are hoping to get this legislation included into a much larger bill that needs to be reauthorized this year. And that's the Pandemic All Hazard Preparedness Act, also known as PAPA. Um, Health Committee thinks that they can move the legislation uh, at the end of this month. So we are continuing to be in discussion with committee members to make sure that this legislation is included in the May markup. That's great. So we talked about the federal issues that we're working on, opioids, Good Samaritan, but what about the state issues? Rain, what are you hearing on the state level? Well, it's springtime, so the state legislatures are in full swing. Um, just in the last week, I've uh, been involved in advocacy efforts in uh, Alaska and Oklahoma. In Alaska, the Medical Practice Act is open. It's under consideration right now, and we wanted to use this opportunity to encourage the legislature to update and modernize osteopathic terminology throughout the Practice Act. Currently, the Practice Act refers to DOs as osteopaths, and the practice of osteopathic medicine as the practice of osteopathy. And this can be confusing for patients and the public um, because really only U.S. trained DOs, DOs who graduate from U.S.-based colleges of osteopathic medicine are licensed and qualified to practice medicine in all of its branches. But uh, uh, osteopaths who graduate from foreign schools or even certificate programs may be only able to practice um, in a way that's more akin to massage therapists or physical therapists. So there really is a big difference between foreign trained osteopaths and U.S. trained DOs. So we want to make sure that that's clear in the legislation um, and to patients and the public. And then in Oklahoma, we also saw a bill that has been sitting since last year. It originally was a cosmetology and barbering act bill um, about booth fees for barbers, but it was abruptly gutted last week to become an open-ended advanced practice registered nurse um, scope of practice expansion bill. So it would allow a couple different types of nurses, including nurse midwives, to practice without any kind of supervision or collaboration with a physician. Um, this includes prescribing um, pharmacologic substances, and we really just want to make sure that physicians are adequately involved in patient care decisions. Um, so we've been working with our state affiliates in both Alaska and Oklahoma to, to um partner with them and, and in support of our positions in those two states. Right. I think that really speaks to why it's important to have a coalition, right? Because, I mean, you're speaking with two voices and multiple memberships instead of just one. Um, I think that can go a long way in influencing a member of Congress or a state lawmaker on, uh, on the issue at hand. You know, what I'm seeing on the advocacy front is a lot of these state issues could potentially boil up to the federal level as well. So that's something that we need to be cognizant of and, and make sure that we, uh, you know, get our letters of opposition in or support, whatever that may be, on the state level 
um, to really kind of either stop it or, or push it um, so it doesn't boil up to the uh, federal level. Um, so uh, John Michael or, or uh, Lauren, have you ever reached out to a local state affiliate or saw like a state bill kind of boil up to that federal level at any point? Well, we've been reaching out to our state affiliates regarding um, the Substance Use Disorder Workforce Loan Repayment Act, which has been really great. They've been sending letters of endorsement to members of Congress, which has actually been pushing members to consider it even more. Again, as far as information sharing is concerned, again, you want to make it as as uh, as personal as possible. So if you're if a member of Congress gets a letter from their state association endorsing a piece of legislation, they're more likely to take it uh, more seriously than they would have before. And they're more likely to factor that in when they're making their decision making process or whether they want to co-sponsor it or not, which is always really helpful. So we're continuing to try and find ways to to reach out to our, our state affiliates and, and and ask them to support legislation uh, like like HR 5102. And we'll continue to want to hear back from them as well to hear about things that are happening in the state so that we can be prepared to to see what happens legislatively um, um, in both the House and the Senate. And and it also works both ways, um, especially with this administration. What we're seeing is that a lot of policies are being trickled down to the states to decide what how they want to implement certain things. Um, one example of this is a workforce requirement on Medicaid. Um, it's up to state to require that if they want to require it. And so the outreach works both ways, too, for us to outreach the state to let them know that this regulation is going to come out and it's something you need to be prepared for. Is this something that, you know, where are you guys and this is an association? And we can be helpful in helping them draft letters on how to, you know, address those issues. So it goes both ways, us reaching out to the state and state reaching out to us, going back and forth on issues that's going to affect them. Well, I think that is wonderful. The next segment might be my favorite segment. Oh, gosh. And it talks a little bit about us and what we're paying attention to. Juicy gossip, entertainment, current events, you name it, anything goes. So what I want to talk about, and I don't know if anybody knows anything about this, but the draft just happened. The what? NFL draft. What? Yeah, I'm what? excited about it, Lauren. I and, know you are. Right. There was an NBA draft too, correct? Like when there were several drafts. Well, when the NFL going, draft is going, everybody yeah, all eyes on the okay. NFL. Okay. So the Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles, in the seventh round, the last round, they drafted a rugby player. What? And this rugby player is six foot eight, three hundred and fifty pounds. And he runs like a gazelle. <laughs> yeah. But what is he going to do? He's a rugby player. Like, what is that? That's well, that's just thing. it. That's what makes us fascinating, right? <laughs> okay. Like, how is this rugby player, this massive rugby player, going to transition over to a game that he has never played before? But the fact that he was drafted in an NFL draft says that he's actually going to see playing time at some point, which I think all eyes on this guy, right? Is, are the Eagles feeling themselves? Because they won the Super Bowl. They might right? be. And so are they feeling really confident with their roster that they could just sort of expand? Is this their experimental album? Well, I would be. <laughs> I hate it because, you know, I'm a Redskins fan and I don't. I want to see them fail. But I also want to see this guy succeed. So we'll see uh, how he does. But I'm excited about it. And I, I want to hear from all, all the physicians and students out there who are excited about the NFL draft as well. I'm going to watch one game with this guy. Okay, like you're okay. gonna let well, of course you won't know in advance when he's gonna play. No. But I am now dedicating one game, one Eagles game this year to see whether this guy hits the field and what he's gonna do. We're gonna now talk I'm, about now it. Now I'm down 
curious. Right. Even though I have no idea what's going on. That is a massive human being. Six foot eight, 350 pounds, just running people over. Uh, so that's where I stand on the NFL dra uh, draft and current events. Rain, I, I think you had something kind of on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> Well, my guilty pleasure is uh, celebrity gossip. So I was just wondering if anyone saw Kate Middleton debut her baby in the Rosemary's Baby dress, and if you think that's a, an omen or, or you so, think it was unintentional or what. So I need to take a step back from this because I don't. Would you call it a Rosemary's Baby dress? Yes. I, don't, I don't know you've what that never, is. You've never heard of Rosemary's Baby? N that's no. That's one of the classic classic horror movies with Mia Farrow, and she she's chosen to have the spawn of Satan. John, are, John Michael, are you familiar? I have no idea. I didn't watch it because I don't watch horror films, but I know enough about it to Thank know, you. like, to recognize the dress because the dress is, like, instantly recognizable. Yeah, and that poor baby. So I can't imagine who picked that dress out for it. There must be some sort of, like, spawn of Satan dress <laughs> in that you can search and make sure that you don't debut your baby in a spot of Satan dress. If not, but, let's create the website and make these make these dollars. <laughs> I, I, I think we're on to something, Lauren. <laughs> well, I lost. So did you have a name picked out? Because my I thought the baby's name was going to be Arthur Philip Charles. And so I was betting on Arthur and I lost against well, the betting myself. I don't, I don't think Prince Louis was on anybody's radar, and then everybody was confused about whether it's Prince Louis or Prince Louis. But I guess we've got a, we've got a Prince Louis, and supposedly it's somebody's uncle, I think, from back in the day. Yes, uh, it's Charles. Yeah, I think uncle. that was kind of a dark dark horse contender. Yeah, but of course, for a while they thought that she was going to have a girl, and the girl's name was going to be Alice. So everyone was wrong. I didn't hear anything about that. But yeah, they thought she. Oh, but like the boy was like a last minute like swing in the betting direction. Wow. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I bet <laughs> this is something, something that. I bet this is something that Vegas bets on too. A lot. I yeah. guarantee you, there's money going in this. Because people thought really that Arthur was going to be the baby's name. It was going to be a boy, and uh, we were all wrong. I was wrong. It makes me sad. But well, did did you all hear that Kim Kardashian just said she almost named her baby Donda? After Kanye's mom? Oh no, really? I think I yep. like Donda better than Chicago. Although I think Shy is a cute nickname. It is cute. I yeah. like that too. But yeah, Chicago was a Donda, lot. Donda or Mary Jo after one of their moms. Mary Jo. I don't think that goes with Saint and North at all. But no. <laughs> I do like Chicago. I like Shy. Yeah, me too. So my contribution to this is today is National Adopt a Shelter Pet Day. And if you guys have read the deal engage at all, you know that I talk about my cat Grayson a lot. I adopted Grayson last June and he has been a delightful addition to my household. Um, and so I encourage everyone to adopt a pet from a shelter today. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a furry friend. You can adopt a turtle or a snake if that's what you're into or chickens because a lot of people get chickens and then realize that chickens are a lot harder to take care of. Uh, I don't know if there are some Giselles there, but there mm. are plenty of other pet options. So you can always go to PetFinder.com or go to your local shelter and check out like getting a little friend. They uh, provide you with a lifetime of joy and happiness. So that's my my pitch for shelter pets. What? And if you get a turtle, it will definitely be a lifetime because those those guys uh, <laughs> have some longevity in their corner. That's one of my friends. That's why her like husband got a turtle because he was like, you know, I got a friend for life there. And Aww. so that's one of the reasons why they got that turtle. And he's like chilling in the backyard. 
<laughs> commitment. I like it. Yeah, I don't think I, a lifetime commitment seems a bit much, but you know, turtles are cute. Well, Thank you. Well, uh, I think that concludes the entertainment page here at the AOA Public Policy team. I hope everybody enjoyed the Deal Engage podcast. Uh, if you liked it, then we'll continue doing it. We'll talk about the things that we're working on Capitol Hill, advocacy front, uh, you name it, regulatory, state government affairs, we'll cover it. We just want to make sure that everything is up to date and uh, you guys know, know what go is going on. So uh, let us know what you think, and uh, we hope to hear from you soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, guys. podcast you just heard was recorded with Anchor. If you want to make your own, download the Android or iOS app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast. That's anchor.fm slash podcast.